0: Chapter 2 of Man and His Ancestor A Study in Evolution by Charles Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Vestiges of Man's Ancestry When, some centuries ago, man began to find fossil remains of animals in the rocks, a severe shock was given to the prevailing doctrine of the recent creation of the Earth. The adherents of the old theology made strenuous efforts to explain away this unwelcome circumstance. The shells found had been dropped by pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. They were mineral simulations of shells. They had been created by the deity and placed where found. They were anything but what they appeared to be the existing evidences of a long ancient period of animal life reaching back very far beyond the assumed date of creation it need scarcely be said that these explanations especially the one that god had created fossil forms to deceive man for some incomprehensible purpose could not long be maintained some of them were inconsistent with the facts others with common sense And in due time, it was everywhere admitted that the earth is of remote duration and has been inhabited by animals and plants for untold ages. Its structure revealed its history. Its annals were found to be written in the rocks. Its anatomy was full of the evidences of its origin. When, not many years ago, men began to find the fossil remains of ancient structures in the body of man himself... Theology was brought face to face with a problem as difficult to explain, from its special point of view, as that of the fossils in the rocks. As the latter had threatened and finally disproved the doctrine of the special creation of the earth, so the former assailed the doctrine of the special creation of man, and annihilated it in the minds of many eminent scientists it formed a prominent argument in favor of the theory of organic evolution and as such calls for consideration here as a suitable groundwork for our special theme the structures referred to may be justly called fossil since they present strong evidence of being the useless remains of structures which played an active part in the bodies of some former animals a significant example of this exists in the vermiform appendix a narrow blind tube descending from the cecum of man and detrimental instead of useful since it is the seat of the frequently fatal disease known as appendicitis this tube usually from three to six inches long and of the thickness of a goose-quill is occasionally absent in man occasionally of considerable size It is quite large, as compared with the other intestines in the human embryo, but ceases to grow after a certain stage of development. The cecum is extremely long in some of the lower vegetable-eating animals, and the vermiform appendix seems to be a rudiment of the formerly extended portion of this organ. It is large in the anthropoid apes, especially in the orang, in which it is very long and spirally convoluted its survival in man as a useless and dangerous aborted organ is a powerful argument in favour of his descent from the lower animals in the brain of man and many of the lower vertebrates hanging by two peduncles or strands of nerve fibre from the thalami or beds of the optic nerve is a small rounded or heart-shaped body of about the size of a pea known as the pineal gland It is so destitute of any evident function that Descartes, in lack of any more probable explanation of its presence, ascribed it to the noble duty of serving as the seat of the soul. Late research has been more successful in tracking this organ to its lair. It is larger in the embryo than in the adult man, still larger in some lower vertebrates, and in certain lizards has been found to exist as an eye its parts plainly distinguishable under the microscope it is placed in the middle of the forehead between the other eyes and was no doubt an active organ in the vision of some ancient bactraceans the pineal eye as it is now named once useful long useless has persisted as a fossil structure through a far extended line of development No more convincing evidence that man gained his body through descent from the lower animals could be asked for than the survival in the human brain of this wonderfully significant remnant of a formerly useful organ. Like various other vestiges of ancient organs, it is not only useless but detrimental. It occasionally enlarges and becomes the seat of large and complicated tumors, which may cause death by their compression of the brain. Two other structures common to most of the vertebrate animals exist in man, though they render him little or no service. These are the thymus and thyroid glands, apparently vestigial structures. The thymus gland attains a considerable development in the embryo and shrinks away to the merest vestige in the adult. It begins to form early in the embryo life as an epithelial ingrowth from the throat and extends from the neck into the chest. It continues to grow after birth but later begins to shrink and nearly disappears in the adult the thyroid gland has a somewhat similar origin it beginning as an ingrowth from the lower section of the pharynx and extending down to the lower part of the neck it subsequently loses its connection with the pharynx and in adult life is a bilobed bed structure on either side of the windpipe like the thymus it is a ductless gland abundantly supplied with blood vessels and possesses a vast number of small cavities lined with cells and containing an insoluble jelly so far as appears both these glands are useless or nearly so to man or if the thyroid performs any useful service it is a minor and obscure one such functions as it may have could probably be performed by some of the other organs while it is positively detrimental as the seed of goiter. This unsightly disease is due to its enlargement, either by a great increase of its blood vessels or a development of the capsules and increase of their contained jelly. Dr. S. V. Clevenger considers these organs to have had a branchial or respiratory origin, saying that there are many reasons for believing them to be rudimentary gills. Owen says that the thymus appears in vertebrates with the establishment of the lung as the main or exclusive respiratory organ. It is wanting in all fishes, also in the gill-bearing bactratians, siren, and proteus. The thyroid appears in fishes, and Gegenbauer believes that it may have been a useful organ to the tunicata in their former state of existence. Dr. Clevenger in The American Naturalist for January 1884 points out another curious structure in man whose significance does not seem to have been previously observed. This is a strange and striking fact relating to the formation of the veins. It is well known that these organs possess valves, which permit the free upward flow of the blood toward the heart, but resist its descent through the action of gravity in this way aiding its return from the extremities the rule holds good throughout the quadrupeds that the vertical veins possess valves while they are absent from the horizontal veins in which they would be of no utility but the singular fact exists that in the human trunk the valves occur in the horizontal and are absent from the vertical veins in other words they exist where they are useless for their apparent purpose and are absent where they would be useful the only conclusion that can be reasonably drawn from this strange fact is that we are here dealing with a fossilized structure a functionless survival it leads irresistibly to the inference that man has descended from a quadruped ancestor and that when his body took the upright position the structure of the veins not being seriously detrimental remained unchanged those which had been vertical became horizontal and retained their now useless valves. Those which had been horizontal became vertical and remained destitute of valves. The veins of the arms and legs, vertical in both forms, retained their valves. Dr. Clevenger points out that the intercostal veins, which carry blood almost horizontally backward to the azygos veins, and which would run vertically upward in quadrupeds, possess valves these are not only useless to man but when he lies upon his back they are an actual hindrance to the free flow of the blood in like manner the inferior thyroid veins whose blood flows into the innominate are obstructed by valves at the point of junction we quote from him as follows there are two pairs of valves in the external jugular and one pair in the internal jugular But in recognition of their uselessness, they do not prevent regurgitation of blood nor liquids from passing upward. An apparent anomaly exists in the absence of valves from parts where they are most needed, as in the vena cava, spinal, iliac, hemorrhoidal, and portal. The ozygous veins have imperfect valves. Place men upon all fours and the law governing the presence and absence of valves is at once apparent applicable, so far as I have been able to ascertain, to all quadrupedal and quadrumanous animals. Dorsal veins are valved. Cephalod, ventrod, and caudad veins have no valves. Of the few exceptions to this rule, he considers the valves of the jugular veins as in process of becoming obsolete, and the rudimentary azygos valves as a recent development valves in the hemorrhoidal veins would be out of place in quadrupeds but their absence in man is a serious defect in his organization since the resulting engorgement of blood gives rise to the distressing disease known as piles the presence of valves would obviate this no one can argue that this useless and to some extent injurious condition is a designed result of creation There could not, indeed, be stronger evidence that man has descended from a quadruped ancestor. Dr. Clevenger points out other serious results of the upright position of the body from which quadrupeds are free. One of these is the liability to inguinal hernia, or rupture, which leads to much suffering and frequent death in man. Prolapsus uteri is another, and a third to which he particularly alludes is difficulty in parturition it has been suggested above that the thyroid gland may possibly be of some minor functional importance and that the thymus is developed in the embryo sufficiently to be functional as regards the latter no one is likely to maintain that an act of direct creation would include the production of an organ of some slight and obscure utility to the embryo and useless in later life the strong probability is that this gland belongs in the same category with other embryonic survivals yet to be pointed out as regards the seeming function of the thyroid it may be said that the surviving relic of an ancient functional organ is quite capable of varying in structure and taking upon itself a new function of minor value which in its absence would be left undone or be performed by some of the other organs A highly interesting example of this exists in the swim bladder of the fish, which there is good reason to believe is a survival of an ancient structure used for quite a different purpose. It was originally developed, in the opinion of the writer, as an air-breathing organ in a very ancient semi-amphibious class of fishes from which the existing bony fishes have descended. When the latter resumed the gill-breathing habit, the organ lost its original function and its subsequent history is a curious and significant one in some modern fishes it has quite disappeared in others it exists as a minute and useless remnant no larger than a pea in many it has been converted into the swim bladder and in this form serves a useful purpose but varies greatly in shape and size finally in a few instances it retains some measure of its probably original function of air-breathing it is a fact of much significance that those fishes without a swim bladder do not seem to be at any disadvantage from its absence but are able to make their way vertically through the water quite as well as those which possess this organ the presumption therefore is that it is of little utility to the fish and that its employment for this purpose is a mere resultant of its survival and character such an organ could never have been evolved as an aid in swimming since its shrinkage to a useless rudiment in some cases and its complete extinction in others show that this function is in no sense a necessary one it is there and has lost its old use and is in some cases adapted to another purpose that is all that can be said man is the one hairless mammal or hairless except on a few parts of his body yet the whole body is covered with a thin growth of hair useless for any purpose of protection and only explainable as a survival from the mammalian covering the occasional considerable development of the hair is an indication pointing to such an origin this applies not only to individuals but to tribes or races as in the instances of the inos of japan and some of the pygmies of africa the disappearance of the hair in man has been traced to no well-established cause darwin's view that it may have been a result of sexual selection seems the most probable explanation certainly this is the case with the beard whose absence in women shows it to be of no utility and whose presence in man is in accord with the many structures in male animals apparently due to this form of selection darwin has pointed out and explained a very curious peculiarity of the hair in man which is absolutely inexplicable except on the theory of descent this is the fact that the hairs on man's arms are directed toward the elbow from above and below thus growing in opposite directions on the upper and lower arms the same peculiarity exists in the larger anthropoid apes and in some of the gibbons but it is not found in the lower mammals In the apes, it is believed to be due to the habit of protecting the head from rain by covering it with the hands, the hairs turning so that the rain can run downward freely in both directions towards the bent elbow. This is so useless in man that it can be explained only as survival. There are some other survivals in man of ancient structures to which a passing allusion must suffice. In man's eye is a minute membrane, the semilunar fold, which is absolutely useless in his economy there is every reason to believe that this is the rudiment of a membrane which is fully developed in many animals and is especially useful to birds the nictating membrane or third eyelid again the muscles which move the skin in many animals especially in horses have left inactive remnants in many parts of the human body these are normally active only in the forehead where they serve to lift the eyebrow, but they occasionally become active elsewhere. Thus, there are some persons who can move the skin of the scalp. Darwin cites some who could throw heavy books from the head in this manner. The same may be said of the rudimentary muscles of the ear. There are persons who can move their ears in the same way as is done by the lower animals again the whole external ear may be looked upon as a rudimentary structure since it does not appear to aid the hearing in man as regards the pointed ear of man's probable ancestor darwin calls attention to what seems a trace in man of the lost tip carrying this consideration farther it may be asked of what use are the five toes to man would not a solid foot have answered the purpose of walking quite as well but as survivals their presence is fully accounted for since they are indispensable to many of the lower animals question may also be made of the utility of the large number of bones in the wrist and heel of man equal flexibility of the joint could certainly have been obtained with a smaller number of bones it is only when these are traced back to their probable origin in the walking organs of the fish ancestor of the bactrians that their presence becomes explainable they are apparently survivals of a very ancient structure originated for swimming and adapted to walking as regards the wrist of man a curious prediction that a certain bone found in some of the lower animals the os central would be found in man has been made and verified it being discovered as a very small rudiment in the human embryo The tail, so common a feature in the lower animals, but absent from the higher apes and from man, has not vanished without leaving its traces. In the human embryo, it is plainly indicated, and while it vanishes in man beyond the embryo stage, it is simply hidden beneath the skin, where its vertebrae are still apparent, usually three, sometimes four or five, in number. In addition to this, the muscles which move the tail have left traces of their presence, which not infrequently develop into true muscles. In the human embryo, indeed, we find ourselves in the midst of highly significant indications of man's origin. The body of man passes its early development through a series of stages, in each of which it resembles the mature or the embryo state of certain animals lower in the stage of existence, it begins its existence as a simple cell analogous in form to the amoeba one of the lowest living creatures and later assumes the gastrula form supposed to have been that of the earliest many celled animals from this state it progresses by successive stages each of which has some relation in form to a lower class the most significant of these is that in which the embryo is closely assimilated to the fish By the possession of gill slits. There are four of these openings in the neck of the human fetus, and they are at times so persistent that children have been born with them still open, so that fluids taken in at the mouth could trickle out at the neck, these openings being sufficient to admit a thin probe. These slits are utilized in the developing embryo, one of them being devoted to an important duty, that of conversion into the external and middle ear. Thus, the opening for hearing is an adaptation of what was once an opening for breathing. Occasionally, an ear-like outgrowth appears on the neck, indicative of the attempt of a second slit to develop into an ear. The purpose of the gill slits is made more apparent by the presence in the embryo of gill arches of the blood vessels, like those normal to the fish, These disappear in common with the slits. The temporary appearance of these gill slits is the strongest evidence that could well be demanded that the human embryo passes through the various stages which the adult has assumed in its long development in past time, and that one of these stages was the fish. And these form only one of the evidences of man's origin to be found in the embryo. Another which may be mentioned is the wool-like hair which covers the fetus, and whose presence is incomprehensible except on the theory of descent. Its most probable explanation is that it appears as a passing survival of the first permanent coat of hair of the lower mammals. In the milk teeth of man we have another useless and often annoying survival of an ancient state of the dental organs we cannot well imagine that in any direct creation a set of permanent teeth would have been provided as a preliminary to a permanent set an utterly useless provision but when we find that in a lower stage of animal life the old teeth are periodically succeeded by new ones we can understand how a trace of this condition has persisted in the mammalia other evidence of man's origin in the lower animals could be drawn from the phenomena of atavism or arrest of development in parts or organs of the body atavism is usually confined within the line of human descent conditions appearing in many of us which belonged to some of our human ancestors a few generations occasionally many generations in the past but conditions now and then appear which are abnormal to man but which are normal to some of the lower animals. This tendency is exhibited by all organisms. In an occasional horse, the long-lost stripes of the zebra-like ancestor reappear. Now and then, a blue pigeon, like the ancestral form, crops up in a pure breed of domesticated birds. Even in the details of anatomy, some long-vanished character suddenly appears. Many instances of this in man might be cited, embracing various features of the muscular and other internal organs. The abnormality of clubfoot may be pointed to as a reversion to the shape of the foot in the anthropoid apes. This, however, is a retention of a condition existing in the fetus of man, the foot being drawn up and the sole turned inward and upward. It is simply a passing testimony to the ancestral condition of man. Again, we have the fact that man possesses normally only 12 ribs, one less than is found in the gorilla and the chimpanzee. This leads to the possibility that man may have lost a rib in his development, and insignificant evidence of this is the fact that occasionally a thirteenth rib appears in the human framework. The functionless organs in men are, as above said, closely analogous to the fossils in the rocks in that both point back to a period in which they were active, vital forms occupying a definite place in the long line of animal life or animal structure. The argument that God directly created the fossils is no more absurd than the one that he directly created these useless and at time detrimental organs. It is impossible to offer a reason for such a futile exercise of creative power unless that it was intended to make it falsely appear that man arose from the world of life below him will any one in this age assert that god placed useless and dangerous structures in the body of man for the incredible purpose of deceiving him and in regard to his origin And will it be further asserted that the deity placed similar stumbling blocks to the human reason in the embryo in order to deceive those who should extend their researches to this low level? It would be difficult to conceive of a more preposterous idea, yet there is no other escape from what seems a self-evident fact, that man is a product of evolution from the lower animals and bears the marks of his ancestry thick upon him. End of chapter two.